Good morning. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the 23rd Psalm. Psalm 23. You're probably wondering what in the world is this man doing teaching from an Old Testament passage on Easter morning. But uh, I want you to understand that the Old Testament is replete with references to our immortality and to the resurrection. You have to remember that the Sadducees, who were the rationalists of Jesus' day, did not take the Old Testament seriously. And uh, they didn't believe in a resurrection. The Pharisees, uh, who took the Bible straight, who were serious students of the Old Testament and uh, were literalists in every sense of the word, believed in a resurrection because it's there. Uh, It's there in symbol. It's there in illustration. It's there in word pictures. It's there and it's here in the 23rd Psalm. David is one of my favorite characters. Uh, What a magnificent man. Uh, He's sort of a composite of uh, Norman Schwarzkopf and T.S. Eliot and Pavarotti and Joe Montana. Uh, He was a a Renaissance uh, man two and a half millennia uh, before the Renaissance. Wonderful, wonderful uh, leader, skilled musician, military leader, and uh, just a wonderful person. Uh, He had a very manly, uh, vigorous, muscular uh, faith. He uh, describes uh, himself panting after God as the wounded or the hounded deer pants after the water brooks. He was obsessed with the idea of knowing God. But he also had a number of other less pleasurable passions, greed and ambition and lust and anger, very often out of control. And it's those twin obsessions that make him so familiar to me. He's uh, my kind of man in more than, more way than more ways than one. That's why I love to read his his poems. These are actually folk songs, as you know, folk songs of faith, written out of the experience of uh, of various uh, men of Old Testament times, and in this particular uh, occasion, written by by David. Now, some have said that David. Uh, wrote this psalm in his youth when he was a shepherd. For myself, I don't think so. It bears the marks of a mature faith. This is someone who's walked with God for a long, long time. He does use analogies from his uh, youth when he was a shepherd. Most of us illustrate from our past and our own experience and our own disciplines, and I assume that David did the same. He's simply using some metaphors from his uh, past life as a shepherd. Someone has suggested that he had a room in his palace where he kept the, the old implements of shepherding, his crook and his staff and, and uh, his uh, slingshot, and his sling and bag of rocks. Occasionally he would go into that room and reminisce on what it was like to be a shepherd and what it was like to have God as his shepherd. And that's what he's doing in this, uh, this is in this psalm. This is David's memoirs, his reminiscences. This was his creed. This is one of the most pregnant psalms that uh, that I know anything about. Familiarity breeds contempt. You know, it certainly breeds indifference. And in this case, we know this psalm so well we sometimes don't don't recognize its depths. But this is uh, one of those all-inclusive texts.
The first verse is the theme. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall lack nothing. I still prefer the King James. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. In Hebrew, it's a very terse verse. Just, just a few words. Yahweh, my shepherd. I shall not want. The verb's just one word. I shall not want. What a stupendous simplicity. When the Lord is our shepherd... We don't need anything. <laughs> Our lives are, are filled with, uh, with wanting. There's some strange, indefinable longing that we all have. It fills us with sadness. We don't know what it is we want, but we want it so much it almost breaks our hearts sometimes. And uh, the world, uh, far from uh, satisfying us, only increases that, that longing. Uh, ad makers uh, bully us into buying their things and, and borrowing against our future so we can have what we want right now. Uh, generous incentives and rebates and easy payment plans induce us to buy more. And, and yet, uh, the more we get, the more we want. Nothing ever satisfies us. There's an insatiable desire for more. Our dog has taken a liking to peanut butter. I discovered that's the only way to get pills down her. Uh, she uh, gets uh, kind of nasty when we try to give her pills. And so I, I discovered if I put peanut butter on my finger and wrap it around a pill, I can poke it down her throat. But what's happened is that she's developed this insatiable craving for peanut butter. <laughs> the more she gets, the more she wants. Even though it's distasteful to her, she rubs her mouth on the grass and she works her tongue on through the roof of her mouth trying to get the peanut butter off and then she goes back into the kitchen and looks up at the cabinet longingly where the peanut butter jar is kept it's the way we are you know the more we get uh, the more we want education and enlightenment and family and children and acquisition and possession and collecting and excess doesn't do any good the more we get the more we want we just keep hungering and thirsting after something more. And even our best moments, even when we get what we're seeking, our best moments are sprinkled with that odd sadness. No one or nothing ever quite comes through. I think what David is saying here is that we need to listen to our longings. We need to pay attention to those wants because they are given to us. They are designed to lead us to the place where we shall not want. There's only only one, one source of satisfaction in this world. It's our Lord Jesus. You know, we're so much like the Rolling Stones. We can't get no satisfaction. But uh, we find it in the Lord. When the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Not a shepherd, not the shepherd, but my very own shepherd. That's what we're made for. C.S. Lewis said, that's, what, that's the thing we've been looking for all of our lives. We finally come to realize that the Lord is the one we've been searching for throughout our entire existence. Now, uh, it seems to me that the rest of this psalm is simply an elaboration, an explication, a kind of an unfolding of that basic idea. And David goes through various areas in life. He begins with our emotional wants, and he moves on to other wants and longings and yearnings and urges that we have. And he shows how the Lord meets every one of those needs. Verse 2, he makes me lie down in green pastures. 
He leads me beside quiet waters. He knows that we hunger and thirst. He understands those uh, hungers even better than, than we do. He's a good shepherd. He knows the terrain. He knows the oases in the desert where the lush uh, meadows occur. He, he takes us there where we can graze. He knows uh, the springs in, in the desert. Sheep are skittish and afraid of falls and rapids. They need quiet pools of water to, where they can, can drink without fear. He knows where those places are, those pools, deep, clear pools where we can drink, and he causes us to lie down and, and to rest. We're the restless ones, you know. We just hustle all the time trying to find something more, and, and uh, the Lord leads us to that place where we can rest. He himself is, as Lewis said, the eatable and drinkable God. Uh, it calls to mind uh, Jesus' comment to the woman at the well. This uh, dear woman that had gone through seven men, some of whom she had married, others she just lived with because she couldn't find any satisfaction. And finally she met the one that she'd been looking for all of her life at that lonely uh, well in Samaria. And he said, I'm, I'm the one you've been looking for. If you come to me, you'll never thirst again. And that's what he is to us. Some of you were raised in homes where you were mistreated and you were abused and and uh, sexually abused, perhaps, and battered, and, or what may even be worse, you were ignored. Some of you have been looking for worth and love and assurance all of your life. I just want you to understand that that's what the Lord wants to be to you and to me. He's that eatable and drinkable Christ who wants to satisfy every need that we have. He leads us beside the still waters. He takes us to those uh, cool Oases where we can drink and slack our thirst, and then we can lie down and, and rest. And then we're told that uh, in verse 3 that uh, he restores our soul and he guides us in paths of righteousness for his namesake. The word that's translated restores here comes from a root that uh, in the Old Testament has the idea of repentance, shuv, to turn around, turn around. It's the word that was addressed to Israel by the prophets repeatedly. Turn around. He said, you're going in the wrong direction. You're wandering off. Turn around. And that's what the Lord does for us. He restores us. A soul in the Old Testament is just used uh, by metonymy for the person. He restores us. Goes after us. Chases after us. In the places where we, even where we thought we'd evade him. And, and he, and he fetches us. He gets us back. Good shepherds don't get down on lost sheep. They, they go after them. They go find them. And uh, they, they bring them back. That's what he does. He, he restores constantly our souls. Makes us ashamed of our sin. And uh, draws us back to the fold and, and back to the shepherd. God knows we uh, need restoration. We all have habits that we, uh, that we struggle with. In the face of temptation, we repeatedly and voluntarily fail. Nobody pushes us into sin. We do it all by ourselves. We're our own worst, uh, worst enemies. Character flaws uh, master us. We fall into bad judgment uh, over and over again. Uh, as Tug McGraw said, sometimes uh, we... We lick the tiger, and sometimes the tiger has us for lunch. 
Uh, we're dominated by moods and habits. And uh, my, how we need restoration. Well, our Lord sees us as we really are. All the flaws, all the, the dirtiness. And he goes after us. And he draws us back to himself. And then... He guides us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He does this simply because he's good. He's the good shepherd. He's as good as his name. And so he tells us what is good and what is true and what is beautiful. We live in a world where uh, ugly, obscene things are cultivated, where uh, everyone tries to shock society, and we're in a, living in a, a culture that's forgotten how to blush, as Jeremiah puts it, and Nobody knows what's good anymore. No one knows what's beautiful. Nobody knows what's worthwhile. Uh, we're at sea, just a, a restless sea of relativism all around us. We don't know what's good anymore. We don't know what's righteous. Well, he leads us in paths of righteousness. He not only shows us what's good, but he walks along with us in that direction. He encourages us. He softens our wills to submit to him. He uh, tells us what's evil. He makes us ashamed of evil in our own lives. And just walking with him rubs off on us. Those of you that are regulars here know we've been going through the book of Galatians and looking at uh, Paul's wonderful picture of the grace of God and how in our, our most abject failure, our Lord lifts us up, restores us to himself, and then he begins to work with us slowly in his own time in his own way, at his own pace, bringing us to the place that he wants us to be. See, it all depends upon him. He leads us. doesn't drive us. doesn't bully us. He leads us into righteousness for his namesake. And then uh, in verse 4, we're told that in the course of his leading, he not only takes us beside quiet waters, he not only guides us into righteousness, But when we have to walk down that narrow valley, that deep, dark, dreaded valley of the shadow of death, David says, I will fear no evil. Such such an unknown quantity about quality, about, about death. There's some uncertainty there, but he didn't fear any evil. Because, he says, you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. People want to live forever. You know, we don't, we don't want to die. Like Woody Allen, we don't want to live forever in the minds of our friends. We want to live forever in our apartments. Uh, I don't know if you've ever thought about it before, but it's amazing how much time and money and energy we spend trying to, trying to stay alive or at least try to look more alive. The whole cosmetics industry is based on that premise. And uh, it'd be interesting to get a show of hands. How many of you are in some way or other involved in an industry uh, that's designed to help us stave off death? All you physicians, all of you dentists, all of you people in, uh, who are pharmacists, uh, all you people in the military. You know, millions and millions and millions of dollars are spent just trying to stave off death a little bit longer. But it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Even good physicians can only hold off death so long. And then sooner or later, either we go to our death as we age or death comes to us in our youth and, and we die. We die. That's just one of those hard facts that we keep running into over and over again. We try to evade it. We, we don't want to hear that. 
but we can't evade it. Every once in a while, some tragedy happens, and one of our dear friends is taken, and it may be because uh, some little five-cent piece of equipment broke, and their plane crashed, and they fell to their death, and, and here an irreplaceable human life is gone forever, we feel, we think, and it reminds us that our turn is going to come next. Right? That's, that's why the wise man in the Proverbs says there's more reality at a funeral than there is at a party. Because at least at a funeral, you have to face things as they really are. One of these days, we're all going to die. But when we reach the gate of death, our Lord is there to take us by the hand. He knows about dying. He's been there. And he'll take us down that dark valley and through death to the other side. And David says, I don't fear any evil. He carries with him his rod and staff. The rod is the cudgel with which uh, the shepherd uh, protected the sheep. And the staff is the crook with which he corrected them. He kept them on the path. So we don't need to wander away and we don't need to worry about the hounds of hell. We don't need to fear any evil when we, when we walk through that, that dreaded valley because our Lord walks with us. He's been there before. All other guides have to turn back. Dying is a very lonely thing. But our Lord walks with us. So it takes the sting out of death. See, David knew that. He goes on, You prepare a table before me in the presence of of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. The uh, symbolism changes from a gentle shepherd to that of a gracious host. We're God's guests. He invites us into his house to eat and drink, and he... uh, he pours perfume over our heads. That, that was, uh, it doesn't commend itself to us today, but that's what they used to do in those days as a sign of affection and hospitality. If you really cared about someone, then you poured, you poured precious oil over their heads, and the perfume from that oil would pervade the banquet hall. And everybody would know that you're loved and you're special and you're cared for. Jesus at one point uh, commented to someone who invited him to a meal, that you didn't pour any oil over my head. And that was when the woman came in and broke the alabaster box of perfume over Jesus' feet and, and, and dried his feet with her hair. And, and uh, Jesus pointed out, this woman greeted me because she loves me. You didn't even give me a greeting. You know what this passage is saying? It says that God wants to be our friend. See, back then, you only invited people to eat and drink with you that you preferred. And uh, what David is saying is, God wants to be my friend. Invites me into his house, and I track dirt into his house. I'm a pretty shabby house guest, but he loves me anyway. Knows all the detours and the bad turns in my life, all the moral flaws, all the failures, all the, the struggles, the habits, the failings. He knows all that, but he still wants to be my friend. And we spend a lot of time trying to make ourselves trustworthy and feel trustworthy and dependable and worthwhile. And we think it'll come through affluence or through our appearance or through power, influence upon others. But uh, none of those things really give us any sense of worth. I'll tell you what makes you feel good about yourself. It's when you know God loves you and he cares about you. and He wants you to be his friend forever. Uh, our Lord was always inclined to socialize with uh, sinners. In fact, he gave him a very bad reputation at one point. He, he was thought to be dangerous and scandalous to the clergy of his, of his day. They said of Jesus, he eats with sinners. And he did. He did. See, they, they had come to the 
conclusion that Jesus wanted to be with, with dirt bags and and scruffy, sinful people like like us, and he, and he did, he did, he sure enough did. Uh, the King James version of that passage reads, "Jesus eateth." Uh, Jesus loves sinners and eateth with them, or Jesus welcomes sinners and eateth with them. That's the way it goes. I have a friend of mine, Edith Richards who was led to Christ as a result of that verse. She happened to be sitting out in the audience, and uh, the, the, the preacher said, Jesus receiveth sinners and eateth with them. And uh, she said, that's me, that's me. And I want you to understand that's true. Jesus receives sinners, you and me, and, and he loves to eat with us and fellowship uh, with us. And he invites us uh, into his home. He unconditionally uh, accepts us. And uh, we're told that our enemies are frustrated. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Not life or death or principalities or powers or things present or things to come. All these things over which we have no control. The enemies of our souls that oppose God's plan for us. The devil himself that wants to murder us, wants to deceive us and destroy us if he possibly can. Can't touch us. Because we're in the Father's house and we're welcomed and loved by him. They just gnash their teeth in frustration. They can't touch us. I've always uh, wondered at the fine irony in that statement that that Jesus uh, uh, the, the promise that Jesus made to the disciples, he said, look, you fellows, he said, you're going to be persecuted, you're going to be dragged before tribunals, you're going to be battered, you're going to be beat up, they're even going to kill you. But not one head of your, not one hair of your head will perish. So, in other words, they'll, they'll kill you, but they can't really hurt you. Can't do anything to you. You're untouchable. Because you're loved by, by the Good Shepherd. Uh, then verse 6. Surely, goodness and love, covenant love, will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That sounds almost too good to be true, doesn't it? That uh, Actually, the way David puts it is in the past, surely goodness and mercy have followed me all the days of my life. David had a hard life. Many difficult things. He was an abused child. He was probably an illegitimate child. He was unwanted. It says at one point, uh, mother and father have forsaken me. Yet he said, the Lord has taken me up. Sometimes all he had was the goodness of God. He was very often on the lamb. He was trying to get away from Saul. Saul was trying to kill him. And, and he had enormous pressure as a, as a king, ruling over a vast empire with a lot of uh, discouraging uh, things happening to him, many enemies. Not only of his own soul, but, but of his country. And it was, it was a very difficult time for David. And yet David could say, God's goodness and his love have followed me all the days of my life. And as a matter of fact, it's going to follow me all the way home. He will never leave me or forsake me. There's another psalmist, uh, one of the sons of Asaph. Uh, Psalm 73 is his psalm. He was looking around him at you know, what seemed to be a, the injustice in the world that some people don't make any time for God. They don't, they don't have any interest in God, and yet their lives seem to, be, uh, seem to run smoothly. And 
Nothing ever troubles them. And then he comes to this uh, startling conclusion that they're on a slippery slope to death. If he just looked at this life, then uh, there wouldn't be much to live for. But he comes to the conclusion that he has always been with God. He has had God forever. You have held me by my right hand. You are guiding me right now with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. That's one of those incidental metaphorical references to resurrection in the Old Testament. Enoch was taken. Same verb that's used here. You will take me into glory. Enoch took a long walk with God one day, and they got so far away from Enoch's home, God said, well, let's just uh, go on home. And so uh, Enoch was taken. And uh, in another psalm, the psalmist says, you have sent from above, and you took me. That's a psalm that the, the Israeli army used uh, as their theme for the raid on Entebbe. You sent from above, and you took me. And an amazing rescue of the hostages. And uh, they applied it very literally to their, uh, to their rescue attempt. But metaphorically, it's a reference to the resurrection. You take me. And here David says, when all said and done, when I come to the end of my life, you're going to take me. And I couldn't help but think of Jesus' words in Matthew 4, in John 14. In my Father's house are many places to dwell. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And when I've prepared that place, I will come and take you. Same word that's used in the Greek translations of the Old Testament. I'll receive you unto myself. And where I am, there you shall be also. Now here, the psalmist sees this journey ending in the Father's house. At the end of life, there's a caring Father. And home, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's our home. That's where our hearts are. Sometimes I wonder if my heart's ever been any other place. That's what we've been looking for all of our, of our lives. What a wonderful uh, picture of heaven our homes are. He's not saying that heaven is like home. He's saying our homes are like heaven. It's a place of warmth and acceptance. We're welcome. It's where people know us by name. It's where we can run when we're in trouble. This, that's home to us now, but there's a home yet to come that's perfect in every, every way. It's impervious to change. Where God will wipe away every tear, where sickness and death and suffering and hurt and pain and heartache and malice and greed are excluded. Where we will cease to break our wings against the faultiness of things, as Sarah Teasdale said. Be no more of these terrible frustrations that we experience. Where we'll finally live happily ever after. Where there will be no, uh, no conflict. We had an inordinate number of... Uh, Baby deaths this past week. We had two little ones that went home. And uh, after the first of the gravesides uh, up at Dry Creek, I was walking around the, in part of the infant uh, portion of the cemetery there, and I was looking at little headstones. I was really trying to stay warm. It was very cold. The wind was blowing. In. And I, I was reading the epitaphs on these little tombstones. And there was one that struck me, struck my eye, a uh, little baby that had only lived one day. And inscribed across the bottom of the headstone was this statement, no conflict, only a crown. 
And I thought, that's wonderful. You know, this little baby just uh, took a shortcut, missed all the conflict in this world, and got the crown that you and I will get someday when we step into God's presence. And it reminded me of of one of C.S. Lewis's uh, stories in the uh, Voyage of the Dawn Treader. The children, Eustace and the... I always want to say Eustace because of the street out here. Uh, Eustace and... uh, uh, Lucy and Prince Caspian and Reepicheep had sailed the Don Treader to the to the edge of the world, sailed across the sea. And they reached the end of the world and they looked up toward Aslan's land, which is heaven. And uh, they saw the the towering mountain ranges there, which were not capped with snow as mountains are here in in our world, but were covered with green, uh, verdant, fragrant forests and. And Lewis describes the delicious, as he calls them, delicious aromas that that uh, they could catch from Aslan's land and the sweet music that came from that place. And he said, ever after, the children could never forget that sound. They were always homesick for it, and those aromas. And it was time for Reepicheep to go to Aslan's land. The children had to go back to their world, and, and Prince Caspian had to go back. There were other battles to be fought, and this tough little... A valiant little mouse, Reepicheep, who had fought so valiantly by, by Caspian's side, stood in his coracle, his little boat, and he drew his sword, took it by the hilt and drew it, and he threw it away, Lewis says, because he said, I shall never need it again. And I thought, how wonderful. That's what it's like to be home. That's our place. That's what we've been looking for all of our lives, where... Where conflict comes, uh, where conflict is over, and where we can, where we can rest. Carolyn and I used to read a, a little golden book to our children. I've forgotten the name of it, but I'm, I'll never forget one line from it. We always said it to ourselves when we came back uh, on a trip, because the tagline in this book, the book about a couple of animals that went off on a far journey and. Finally, they came back, and the tagline in the book was, I've been away, but I must say that home looks good to me. And we always say that when we drive back from a vacation. I've been away, but I must say home looks good to me. That's the way I feel about heaven. You know, we're all immortal till our work is done. You know, We don't know how long God's going to leave us here. He'll leave us here until he's done the work in us and through us that he intends to do. But one of these days, we're going to go home. And we're going to stand at the portals of death and our shepherd will lead us down that valley and then we're going to we're going to stand before our lord and we're going to say I've been away but I must say that home looks good to me it's where our hearts are so we've been longing for all of our lives and you say how do I get there well I want to tell you Jesus said I am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father but by me in another place, he said, uh, I quoted it earlier, his statement in John 14. He, he said, I go to prepare a place for you. Now, what did he mean by that? Is you know, Did he strap on his carpenter's apron and he's up there building a house? No, the, the, the way he went to prepare a place was the cross. That's how he gets us into heaven, see, because the problem is, is sin. Death is not just a biological necessity. It's not something that happens to us because we're humans. It is the judgment upon us because of our sin and because Christ went to the cross. He, uh, 
He paid the price for that sin. He took away, as Isaiah puts it, the sting of death. That is, the mortal sting of death. Death no longer kills us. Death now is simply an entrance into life. Because we don't have to bear the condemnation for our sin. He bore our sins in his own body on the cross. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Our sins are past. We don't have to worry about them anymore. Now death simply means more of God entering into into his presence forever. Nobody wants to die. Everybody wants to live forever. You can live forever with our Lord in fellowship with him. If you simply accept what our Lord Jesus has done for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Let's pray. Thank you for these wonderful pictures and points from this psalm. It does seem almost too good to be true. But on second thought, it is too good not to be true. It has to be true. Our hearts resonate in response to this truth. We know it's true. We thank you for coming. Thank you for dying. It's good to know that your death did not result in your, in your staying in the grave, but you broke out of that grave on Easter morning as the Father's way of vindicating this death as the way to his house. We thank you for making it possible for us to stand before the Father clothed in your righteousness with no guilt, no condemnation, and the prospect of a life together with God forever. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.